Shalom, and welcome to Via Hafta Yisrael, a Hebrew phrase which means you shall love Israel. We hope you'll stay with us for the next 30 minutes as our teacher, Dr. Baruch, shares his expository teaching from the Bible. Dr. Baruch is the senior lecturer at the Zera Avraham Institute based in Israel. Although all courses are taught in Hebrew at the Institute, Dr. Baruch is pleased to share this weekly address in English. To find out more about our work in Israel, please visit us on the web at loveisrael.org. That's one word, loveisrael.org. Now, here's Baruch with today's lesson. When one reads the Bible, he encounters much history, the history of the people of God. Another way that we can say that is the history of the children of Israel. And the more we look at what the Bible says concerning that nation, the people of Israel and the land of Israel, the more principles that we can learn spiritually in order to apply to our life so that we can live a life that is in accordance with the will of God. When we study the life of the children of Israel, that history, we learn some things to do, we learn some things not to do, and God manifests himself within this history, and we learn truth that transforms our lives. So with that said, take out your Bible and look with me to the book of Psalms and Psalm 44. The book of Psalms and Psalm 44. Now, when you look at the first verse in the Hebrew text, we find that familiar inscription. This piece of information, and here it tells us that this is for the, the chief choir director, the one who is the orchestra leader for this psalm being used in worship. And we find out who the author is. We read that it is by the sons of Korach. And then finally, we see what type of psalm it is. We read at the end of verse 1, it says, Maskil. And a maskil comes from a Hebrew word which has to do with knowledge, intelligence. And because of the construction grammatically, this is a psalm that if we learn it, we study it, we apply it to our life, we practice it, it is going to make us wise, give us intelligence from a spiritual perspective. We are going to learn principles that will govern our life in a way that we will walk in a God-pleasing manner. So let's begin. That was actually verse 1 in the Hebrew text, but in most other languages, we begin in verse 2 in the Hebrew, which is verse 1 in the English, where it says, O God, in our ears we have heard. Now, it's speaking about the testimony. Once again, the context, as we'll see in a moment, is the, the testimony that the people had heard in this generation concerning their forefathers, what God had done in the past for, for the children of Israel. And the reason why we know this, if you keep reading in the middle of that verse, our forefathers, they have told us. So there's a historical account of what God has done what the people have heard concerning the history. And that is going to have, and don't miss this, great relevance for the people in that age. And the takeaway for, for us is, not just in that age when this psalm was, was composed, but also even for today. So once more, O God, into our ears we have heard, our forefathers, they have told us. And what did they tell? Well, they spoke about the activity, the activity that God did. And we have a word here where oftentimes it's translated wonders or miracles, but it just speaks about godly activity, things that God did for the children of Israel. So we'll translate it as most Bibles do, even though it's singular, 
it implies the activity, meaning the wonders that God has performed in, in their days. So they're looking back to their forefathers. They have heard all these mighty things, these wondrous things, these miraculous things that God had done for that earlier generation in the days previously. Now, we know something. We know that God is the same today, yesterday, and forever. He doesn't change. His principles are consistent. So if we're wise enough to learn what, what brought about this type of activity, these good things, what the forefathers shared with us, what they recounted, what they told, if we learn why God behaved the way he did in response to the people, well, then we can respond in that same way, behaving in that same manner, and anticipate God, if he blessed such behavior in the past, he'll bless it now. If God was displeased with that type of behavior, some other type of action, and we can anticipate that he's going to be equally disappointed with that same behavior if we do it now. So it's learning from history in order that we can grow in our understanding of God. And here's what's important. The motivation for this is so that we can practice righteousness, that we can have a God-pleasing testimony. And then the author says, look now to the next verse, verse 2 in the English. You, speaking about God, you, your hand, nations, and this means to take possession of, to inherit, but in this context, and most of the English translations bear this out, it has to do with God in his strength and the power, that's what hand is speaking of, that you took possession of these, these nations, these peoples, and the implication is you cast them out, and you implanted, that is, you planted in their place, who? The children of Israel. Planted in the context is our forefathers, that earlier generation. And then it says, and almost every Bible ignores what it literally says here. It is the phrase, Torah. The word ra means that which is bad or evil. And what we see is this. Most Bibles will want to translate it in some other way, but it's saying here that God did that which was bad, that which was evil. But understand the context. God only does that which is right. When this word in this context appears, what it means is that these people, and we're talking about the Canaanites, these nations that were rebellious, these nations that were given over towards idolatry, these who would not submit to God's, God's revelation. And we need to remember something. When, when the children of Israel came to, to Jericho, remember what Rahab said? She says, the fear of God has fallen on all of us. We have heard your great victories. We had heard what God had done at the, the, the Yam Suf, the Red Sea, how he had, had parted the waters. We heard all of this, and we're terrified. But here's the problem. Instead of submitting and saying, I'm convinced the God of Israel is the great God. We need to follow him. We need to submit to him. We want to be part of his people. We want to submit what God would have for us to do. They didn't do that. The fear, instead of being the wisdom, instead of bringing about that which changes them in a God-pleasing manner, their fear paralyzed themselves, and they would not submit. Therefore, instead of receiving that which is good from God, God gave to them what he didn't want to give to them, but what they deserved, what their faithlessness, their rebelliousness required. And they experienced that which was not pleasing, not good, rather that which was evil from their standpoint, not according to what they could have received from God. 
So these nations, they experienced that which was bad as an outcome of their faithlessness. And what did he do? Look at the end of, of verse 3 in the Hebrew text, 2 in English. He sent them forth. He, and this simply helps us understand the parallel verb in the first part of this verse, where it says that he cast them out. He took possession of them, but in their place, he planted in that land the forefathers, the children of Israel. Verse, verse 3, where it says, For not with their sword did, did they inherit the land. Now it's talking again about their forefathers. Not with their sword, meaning not with power, not with a weapon, did they inherit the land. Nor it says their arm did not cause, cause them to, to be saved. Experience that deliverance. So it's not through some earthly power. A very important principles that we learn. God does not deliver people always through a physical means. In fact, if God's behind it, he can use the physical, he can use the natural, but what we see in Israel's history is that it was through the supernatural that God manifested that, that mighty hand, that outstretched arm in order to bring about this change and causing the children of Israel to inherit the land of Canaan. Then he says, still in this verse, second part, for your right hand and your arm and the light of your countenance, your face. Now, the light of the face of God is for the purpose of illumination. So we see here that it was God's right hand, his arm, and that arm can be a descendant referring to Messiah. We won't get into that at this time. But it was the light of his countenance. And because, and here's what's so, so powerful, because you, and literally, it's the word lirtzot, and that is, some Bibles will say, you, you gave them favor, but what it says is, you wanted them. All this tells us, in the most simplest way to understand this word, because this same word, in the noun, it's the word ratzon, which has to do with the will. What this verse is speaking about is simply, it was God's will for this to be the outcome. Now. Pause for a moment. What we see is this. When God began to, to do his work of redemption, he began by bringing the people into the land. And when God finishes his work of redemption, we see the beginning, the exodus from Egypt, that great Passover that occurred on the 14th day of the first month. By the way, the crucifixion took place on that same very day, the first day, uh, or the 14th day of the first month. God is consistent. We learn the principles of redemption through the history of Israel. The more we understand how God worked redemption for the children of Israel to establish that nation, the nation of Israel, the more that we'll learn about the work of Messiah and what he's going to do to establish the kingdom of God. So it wasn't by physical means. It wasn't by some natural occurrence in this, this case, but it was because of the right hand of God, his arm, because of the countenance of his, his presence, that God did something that he moved because he wanted them in that land. That was his will. He's the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. He can accomplish his will, and he does. Look now to verse 5 in Hebrew, 4 in other languages. We read, You are he, my king. Now, what I like about the psalmist, he affirms that the Lord, he is King. So important. 
that God is a king, and we are called to submit to his rule. We are called to understand the rule of his kingdom and submit to those principles. So he says, you are he, my God, oh, literally my king, oh God. And he commanded, and the next word is Yeshuot, the Hebrew word Yeshua. Now, not the name Yeshua. And let me just simply say, and it's troublesome, there's a lot of people who are mispronouncing the name of Messiah in Hebrew. It is the name Yeshua. It derives from the same word Yeshua. Yeshua is a name, a proper name, which means Savior. The same meaning as the word Moshiach, derived from the same root. And then we have the concept of salvation, Yeshua. Well, this is Yeshuot, which is salvation in the plural. And it's a term of abundant victory. So what God is saying here in this passage is that he commanded this, this great victory to who? To Yaakov. And here Yaakov speaks of the children of Israel. We know that Yaakov, his name was, was switched to Israel. But realize the name Yaakov means to follow after, in the sense to pursue something. And it's in the, the third person future, which means he will pursue. He is going to go after this. And what was Yaakov, that is Jacob, going after? The heritage of his forefathers, wanting to be part of that covenantal purpose, wanting to be used by God. Esau was not interested in that. When it says that Esau hated his birthright, he hated that heritage, the very heritage of God. Verse 6, in you are our enemies. We will, and notice what it says, we will, many Bibles will say trample. It's a word which speaks of, of charging. It is a word that can speak about an angry bull that is going to be ready to, to just simply bulldoze, run over the enemy, and, and attack. So it says here, not in our own power, not in our own ability, not in our own wisdom, but he says, in you, our enemies, we will, will stampede. In your name, we will defeat, defeat who? Those that rise up, and that's what it says, and the implication is, rise up against us. It speaks about an enemy, those who hate the purposes of, of God and his choice and his use of Israel. Verse, verse 7 in Hebrew, verse 6 in English. For not with a bow, meaning a weapon, not with a bow I will trust, and my, my sword will not save me. So salvation, deliverance, victory, overcoming the enemy, it is not going to be by a sword. It's not going to be by a bow. In other words, it's not going to be earthly weapons that, that bring about a victory. Now, I want to pause for a moment because there is a, a false teaching going on and that is that, that the Antichrist is going to use primarily things like artificial intelligence and technology. Now, will he use that? Yes, he will. I have no doubt about this. But, but understand that when the Bible speaks in the book of Revelation about these, these uh, creatures, they're not artificial intelligence. They are demonic. Understand that, that in that time period of the rule of the Antichrist, there is going to be demonic 
supernatural, spiritual manifestations that are not based on anything that man could create, man has made, or man can do. And likewise, when we speak about some of the catastrophic events that's going to happen, what we would see as disasters, they're not going to be natural disasters. There's going to be no natural, no human, no scientific explanation. Who is going to be bringing these, these catastrophes upon the world? It is the outcome of the wrath of God. Don't look for natural human explanations. You won't find them. They are going to be simply because God speaks them into being. So we realize that things are changing, that, that there's going to be technological changes that are going to be used by the enemy. No doubt about this. But there's going to be primarily a satanic, a demonic, a spiritual realm that is going to be manifested in the last days. Could they use this technology? Obviously, I believe they will, but we can't deny or forget or ignore that spiritual component. It's real. Verse, verse 8 in Hebrew, we find it 7 in, in other languages. For you have saved us from our enemies. Now, it's important to realize the psalmist is saying here, as we survey the history of the children of Israel, his covenant people, we have seen consistently that you, and the implication is you, O God, the God of Jacob, that you have saved, saved us from our enemies. And from those that hate us, you have, you have brought upon those who hate us, you have brought shame. You have brought contempt. Now, notice there's a very important principle. Those who submit to God in a covenantal relationship with God, those who receive the assistance from God, those who call upon the name of God, they're going to experience a change, a glorious change. God is going to, to place his name upon us. He is going to place his character within us. He is going to give us his spirit, all these wonderful benefits. But those who rebel, those who reject a covenant, what's going to happen to them? Well, we know. It says that he's going to place shame upon our enemies, the enemies of Israel. We see now in verse, verse 9 in Hebrew 8 in English, in God we praise all day. That means all day, every day, and throughout the day. So in God we praise all day all the day. And your name forever we give thanks, Selah. So we see a correlation between praising God and giving him thanks. Now there's an important connection and that is being wise enough, having discernment to know and acknowledge what God is doing. When we look at these verses, we see that there's godly activity. God is moving. God is helping. God is delivering. God is shaming the enemy, and he's lifting up and positioning his people where he wants them to be, that they might serve him. And all of this, when we recognize godly activity in our life, the outcome of that, we praise him. The outcome of that, we give him thanks. And what I'm saying is this, being a recipient of the work of God is going to lead to praise and worship among the people of God. So in God, we praise all the day long, and your name forever, we will give thanks, Selah. Then the next verse, but you have abandon us, and you have placed contempt or shame upon us. 
you do not go out with the 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 armies our armies now in verse 10 and i made a note that there was a change in this psalm now it's speaking not about what god has done but the current condition the current spiritual condition of the people when this psalm is being written by the sons of korah what they're saying is we've heard your mighty deeds, your, your powerful activity, your deliverance in the past. But, but what we are currently experiencing is something very, very different than that. We are experiencing, and we feel as though you have abandoned us and that you have placed shame upon us. And we still have those enemies, those who hate us, but, but you're not going out. It says, but you will not go out with our armies. And therefore, look at the next verse, verse 10 in the English text, verse 11 in Hebrew. It says, therefore, you have turned us around, meaning backwards, from the enemy. Instead of attacking, Instead of being that, that mighty one that, that stampedes, that tramples the enemy, what are they experiencing? They are experiencing defeat. They are experiencing that they are fleeing from the enemy, not moving forward, but fleeing backward from them. Furthermore, it says, and, and from our our ones that hate us, from those who hate us. It says, they, they plunder us. They, they take, they take the, the spoils from them, meaning from the, the people, from Israel at this time. Israel, at the time of this, this psalm, is not experiencing God. They feel abandoned by God, deserted by God, and the enemy is overpowering them. And therefore, it's in light of that, they begin to, to examine themselves. And they say, look now to the next verse. It says, you have set us, meaning you have given us over to. You have allowed us to become in, in this predicament. It says, you have set us as a flock, a flock of sheep, as, as food. Meaning, we're going to be devoured. You have made us like sheep, which is for food. And, and in the, the nations, it says here, you have, have scattered us. So they feel vulnerable. And here's the next part. Among the nations you have scattered us, they feel that they are out of place. So the enemies going to devour them. They are not where they should be. When we're out of God's will, we're not going to be recipients of his power, his provision. So they feel very vulnerable in their, their, their position outside of God's will. Next he says, you have sold your people, but, but without much value, without uh, splendor, meaning you sold and you didn't get much back. In fact, he says, you have not uh, become abundant with their price, meaning at that time, and here's the takeaway for us, here's what we need to see. In the time of this psalm, the people were not behaving in a way that was valuable to God. And therefore, God sold them. He, he set them over to their enemy, and he didn't get much in return. Now, obviously, this is poetic language. It's all to emphasize that the behavior of the people, the spiritual condi condition of the children of Israel at that time was not of much value, didn't have much, much extent to it for, for the purposes of God. God got nothing from them in other words so this is why the people fill in this type of predicament because they're not useful they're not valuable to god furthermore he says 
you have set upon us cherpa, which is disgrace or contempt. And he says, you have set upon us contempt for our, our dwelling place or before our neighbors is another way to translate that, a better way, before our neighbors. And we are mocked and we are laughed at, meaning those who are around us. So we see how the word for neighbors is parallel to the ones who are around us in the vicinity of, of us. We have become a mockery and a laughingstock. That's what he's saying. Because of the fact that they are not living in a way, behaving in a way that's useful to God. For you have said us, look at the next verse, verse 14 in most languages, verse 15 in Hebrew. For you have set us as an example. Now the word here is mashal. It can be a parable and instruction, an example that gives instruction. But literally, we can understand this as the term example. You have made us an example among the nations and a shaking of the head among the, and it's another word for nations, a synonym. It's Hebrew poetry. It's parallelism. Now, what does he mean by shaking of the head? Well, when you see someone who is behaving very poorly, a, a person that is violating the, the standards of conduct, those who are, are doing evil. And we find, for example, that they receive the consequence of that. Sometimes you look at them and, and because of what they're now experiencing, you, you kind of shake your head and discuss. You shake your head like, why, why didn't they get this? Why couldn't they understand that this was going to be the outcome? And this is what the psalmist is saying in this passage of Scripture, that you have made us an example. People are looking at us, those in our vicinity, our neighbors, and they are seeing the outcome of foolishness. And they are shaking their heads that, that they don't believe how foolish Israel has become in rebelling and being in this, this situation. Next verse. For all the day there is shame before us. And then also another word for shame. Uh, our face, my face have have been been covered so contempt shame embarrassment however you want to translate this word it says all day long contempt shame embarrassment is before me and my face has been covered with another word for shame or or contempt or disgrace verse 17 and hebrew 16 and other languages for the voice of the one who uh, disgraces and the one who, who blasphemes, and this is simply to speak very derogatory about one. Israel is being spoken of in a way that puts contempt, shame, disgrace upon them, that they are being blasphemed. And it says this is all happening by the enemy and the avenger. Now, things are out of order. Israel's supposed to be God's avenger. Put things in order. Avenge that which is wrong. Being a vessel for that from God. But we see the exact opposite. Instead of Israel being the praise unto the Lord, being glorious, manifesting God's splendor, manifesting all those characteristics that are so spectacular and wonderful. Instead of that, what do we see? Shame, contempt, being a lacking, lacking, laughing stock, being a mockery. How sad. This is the current condition. So they remember the past, but they're not experiencing that God is behaving very differently. And the reason is, 
because of the sinfulness, the disobedience, the fact that the people are not doing what God has called them to do and they're not where God calls them to be. Verse, verse 18, Hebrew 17 in other languages. All of this basically means has come upon us. And But, he says, all of this has happened, but we have not forgotten you. The implication is, we, we have not forgotten this covenant with you, O God, nor, nor are we behaving falsely to this covenant. Meaning, we, we are receiving, when it says we're not behaving falsely, here's what we need to see. The covenant, God says in, in covenant, if you obey it, there's blessings. If you don't obey it, there's going to be punishment, curses. So they're saying, you know, we're, we're not being false. We are receiving exactly. We're acknowledging that we're getting the just outcome of our actions because we are the covenant people of God. So here's another important message, a principle for us in regard to our spiritual conduct. When uh, we are rebellious, when we are disobedient, when we are not walking in faith, when we're not believing in the promises of God, God is going to be displeased. There is going to be an outcome of God in our life that's not pleasant, that's not edifying, rather it's tearing us down. This is also the faithfulness of God for his covenant people, whom God is not pleased with if it's one that belongs to him. God is going to discipline that one. He is going to manifest to them his displeasure, and that's what they're experiencing. It says also, even though that this is their situation, it says, but our hearts will not uh, withdraw backward, will not retreat. Nor, it says here, will our steps be given over from from your your path now what we see here is a change a change spiritually what's happening in these last two verses is this they're acknowledging the faithfulness of god to his covenant that they are in this predicament this situation because of his righteousness to his covenant and then secondly they're saying we are going to recommit reaffirm our 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 relationship with you we are not going to allow our hearts to to move away go backwards we're not going to step away from your path allow that to be moved us to be moved away from you verse verse 20 in hebrew 19 in english for in the place of of jackals we we have been brought to submissiveness now another way to understand that is that we have been broken that god in this location now jackals tended to live and inhabit not in the best land in desolate land and so there they are in the place of jackals not in a good place not in the land of 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 milk and honey, quite removed from that. Now, it might be the same location, but the land has changed. It's not that rich, good land. It's become desolate because of the sinfulness of the people. And what the psalmist is saying is that uh, we have been broken. You broke us, God. You have have humbled us. You have, have brought us to submissiveness in this place. And you have covered us with what? Covered us in the valley, literally the shadow of death. But the implication is that they're in a deep valley in the shadow. The death is a death shadow. So they're acknowledging we have come to our senses. It is an image of repentance that they are acknowledging. And that's why it says... If, if we forget, if we forget 
the name of our God. So we're not going to do that. If the implication is, since we're not going to forget the name of God, we, we are, are spreading our hands, nor are we going to spread our hands unto false gods. It's an image for idols. So he's saying here, is, is this where we are? And the answer is implied, no, it's not. That we are not going to, to worship foreign gods. We're not going to forget you, O God. We're not going to forget the name, the character of God. We're going to affirm this. And then he says, look at verse 22 in Hebrew, 21 in, in English. Hello, which means surely. The Hebrew phrase, hello, means surely. It is an emphatic statement. He says, surely, God, you, you have investigated this. God, you know that despite what we're experiencing, we, we don't want to end this covenantal relationship. We, we don't want to go after false gods. We're, we're not wanting to remain in this current condition spiritually. We want a change. And he says, for he, referring to God, for he knows the, the mysteries or the secret things of the heart. So they're coming clean. They're saying, God, examine my heart. God, you know all things. You can investigate this. Yes, we were in disobedience. Yes, we were in rebelliousness. Yes, we've experienced the consequences of that. And now, you know, God, we, we want to repent. We want to turn back to you. We want these promises to be renewed in our life. We want to once more experience your workmanship, your activity, your miraculous wonders in, in our life. We want to go back to how our forefathers experienced you. They are pleading for a change, a sincere change. Verse 23 in Hebrew, 22 in other languages. For unto you, it says here, we are killed all day. Now, it speaks about the fact that up until this time, the enemy is, is having a, a great deal of destruction upon them. It says, for unto you, we're, we're not changing, we're not submitting to them, we're not joining them. We are committed to you, but yet, all day long, we, we are dying. And we are thought of as, as sheep to the slaughter. So in the midst of this destruction, this death, this suffering, what are they doing? Instead of being angry with God, cursing God, saying, where is God? He's not faithful to us. He doesn't love us anymore. He, is, he has, has violated his covenant. They're not saying that. They know they're guilty. And they're renewing their relationship with him. In the midst of death, in the midst of, of great tribulation, suffering, and the such. Now, I believe that this greatly foreshadows what we're going to see in the last days. This sounds very familiar to what a remnant of Israel, that one-third, is going to say during Jacob's tribulation, that they're going to remember the promises of God, primarily the promise of the Redeemer, and, and that remnant that's going to be brought through the tribulation, they are going to cry out, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They're going to, to in the midst of their slaughter that they're experiencing, reach out to God. And that's why it says, now we're ready for verse 24, 23 in, in other languages. It says, rise up. Why do you sleep, O Lord? That's what they're experiencing. Now, God never sleeps or slumbers the one who keeps Israel. But God is distant. God is quiet. God is silent. He is not moving, not behaving. They're not experiencing his presence. So they say, wake up. 
Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Then we have a word that means to come to an end, and it means the end of sleep. And he says, do not abandon us forever. That's the implication. Do not leave us. Don't forsake us forever. We need God to renew. Now, the message is simple. The people are wanting to renew their commitment to the covenant, and they're beseeching God for him to do his part in renewing this covenant. And again, they're still feeling abandoned, and so they say, Why have you hidden your face? You, it says here, you have forgotten, meaning, have you forgotten us? Our, our affliction and our, our stress, our suffering, it's a word for pressure or anxiety. It says, have you forgotten what we're going through right now? For we have been brought down, made to bow. Now, it's singular, but it's speaking about I'm the people that the people have been made to bow down to, to the, the dust, to the ground. And notice he speaks about the soul. For our soul has been made to be bowed down to the ground. And our bellies, and some Bibles say it relates to the whole body, but literally it's the stomach. The stomach clings to the, the earth. So they have been humiliated. There's no one. They have been defeated. There's no one that can help them. No one that can change their situation but God. Through his wondrous works, his mighty deeds, his supernatural activity. And therefore, now we're ready for the last verse. They cry out, rise up. And notice how they, they speak to God. No question they're strict speaking, addressing him, but they say, Oh, help, meaning God. He's our help. Oh, help, rise up for us. And then it says, redeem, redeem us on account of your grace. Now, I want to conclude this, this marvelous psalm with just showing some things based upon a study of Hebrew poetry rooted in a proper understanding of the character of Hebrew poetry, which is parallelism. We see here that God is going to help, rise up and help. How is he doing that? Now, I remember I was teaching quite frequently at one location, and there was a husband and wife. And I would ask a question, and the purpose for asking a question is to help people discover how to study, how to rightly understand, interpret the Word of God. There are laws. And the husband, he would just answer and what made sense to him, what he thought a good answer would be. He never did look at the text for the answer. He just guessed. But his wife, she didn't guess. She always based her answer on what was written in the text. So if I say to you, when the people say, rise up, oh God, you're our help, rise up, oh help, what is that parallel with? How is God going to help the people? And what's the term that is there? The term is padenu, which is redeem us. The help that they want is not just any help, but it's a redemptive help that God would redeem. Now, secondly, we find out something. We find out as well that God's going to rise up. He's going to do the work of redemption. He is going to give help to them, and that help is going to be in the form of what? And the answer is chesed, your grace, O God. So we see a connection here between the grace of God leading to redemption, which is how God helps. Now, there's rules for experiencing redemption. 
The new covenant is full of that. Paul taught extensively upon that. So did other writers in the new covenant, that is the New Testament. So do we see those principles in the Old Testament. But realize, if you want help, you will not receive God's help outside a redemptive relationship with him. And the only way that you can have such a relationship is by receiving God's grace. His grace is the only thing that can redeem you. So if you're not willing to do what's necessary, now what's that? Faith, believe, accept. But when I say do what's necessary, and this is not a work, we're not playing part of the the work for our redemption. But it's acknowledgement of truth. We have to say, I affirm God's standards. His standards are right. I fall short of that. What does that mean? I'm a sinner. So so part of the requirement of, of being redeemed is simply to acknowledge your sinfulness. That's not a work. We don't get pat on the back because we find out we're sinners. That's the Word of God teaches us. The Torah, one of the primary purposes of the Torah is to declare to me, I am a sinner. I am not fulfilling God's expectations. I am not living righteously. I am violating His standards. So it's not part of the work. We're not participating in the work of our redemption. We're acknowledging the need of our redemption. And then we simply believe. We believe in the promise of God. What Messiah has done so that we can be redeemed by his blood. There's an inherent relationship between the blood of Messiah and the giving of the grace of God. Until Messiah's blood was shed on Passover, that is the festival of redemption, grace, the grace that saves, the grace that puts us into an eternal covenant with God, was not available. So it's the laws of Hebrew poetry that we learn from understanding parallelism that causes us to, to arrive to understand what the Word of God is saying. Well, in with that. Until next week, Shalom from Israel. Well, we hope you will benefit from today's message and share it with others. Please plan to join us each week at this time and on this channel for our broadcast of loveisrael.org. Again, to find out more about us, please visit our website, loveisrael.org. There you will find articles and numerous other lectures by Baruch. These teachings are in video form. You may download them or watch them in streaming video. Until next week, may the Lord bless you in our Messiah Yeshua, that is, Jesus, as you walk with Him. Shalom from Israel. Thank <laughs> you.